2007, October 9th, Lecture 14, The Revolutions of Nicholas Copernicus. Now yesterday, we looked over a fairly broad swath of history and looked at the ways in which people tried to describe the motions they saw in the heavens, the rising and setting of the sun, the annual motion of the sun west towards the east along the ecliptic, the phases of the moon, and even the occasion, the westward to eastward general motion of the planets, but then they stopped, started moving east to west in retrograde motion, and then reversed, and all the various details involved. There were certain assumptions that went into those models. They were Aristotelian systems in their basis. Today we're going to look, we're going to fast forward in history, now to the early, late Middle Ages, early Renaissance, to talk about Nicholas Copernicus and his change in the way in which we view that solar system. So the key ideas today is that the idea is to bring us up to speed with and introduce the Copernican heliocentric system. Simply put, the Earth rotates on its axis once a day. The Earth and the planets all move, revolve together around a centrally located sun, hence the name heliocentric. And an interesting fact most people don't appreciate is that the Copernican system actually retained epicycles. But it purged the system of Ptolemy's equant, this little machinery we put in at the end there, to restore the primacy of uniform circular motion. So Copernicus was recovering the Aristotelian Platonic ideal. And we'll see what the consequences of that are in a moment. The Copernican system was immediately objected to. In addition to the rejections on religious grounds, which were somewhat surprising, what really people objected to substantially was the impossibility of a moving Earth. They were falling back on an Aristotelian idea and a more subtle problem, the fact that stellar parallaxes are not observed. And what that means, of course, we'll see by the end of the lecture. Speaking with a little quote, it comes from a man by the name of Alfonso X, the wise, the king of Castile in the 13th century. Upon being instructed in the Ptolemaic system, he was said to have commented, if the Lord Almighty had consulted me before embarking upon the creation, I should have recommended something simpler. In the 13th century was when Ptolemy's work on the geocentric system re-entered the consciousness of the European world. It was when the work was translated from Arabic back into Latin. And the system that he had in mind and was instructed is this picture that we showed at the end of the lecture last time. This is Ptolemy's system from the second century AD. It is a geocentric system but the Earth is located slightly off-center at an eccentric point, and the motions are on these deference with epicycles riding upon the deference, but the sweep of the epicycle is controlled by an even further off-axis point through the dead center called an equant. So here, for example, is the Earth at the center. This is a computer rendering of the actual sort of classic Ptolemaic model. The circle of the Moon, the circles of Mercury and Venus and the Sun, the only simple circle, it seems, in this picture, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And even this picture has omitted many of the circles for clarity, otherwise the picture would be hopelessly complicated to draw. It had 40 epicycles and, and deference. All of the various equants were tuned in their positions so as to properly preserve the correct positions of the planets as they appear on the sky from the perspective of the Earth. And in many ways, it, the, this ultimate geocentric system worked. And it worked in the sense that what was asked of it is that it give predictable, good, solid, accurate predictions of where the planets would be on a certain day. If over time the system began to slip with respect to observations, 
All you had to do was go in and retune and refine the various rates of rotation of the various epicycles and equants to make it come out right, to make it preserve appearances. But a problem was you couldn't say, why is that epicycle have this rate and not another? What is it that tells that epicycle to have this rate? They couldn't turn the question around and get at the idea of physical explanations. They simply tried to reproduce what was seen. Well, that was the state of knowledge at the end of the second century AD. Within 200 years, that knowledge and even most of the culture in which it was based was lost to the, classic, to the, to the Western world. And it was lost because of the fall of Rome around the fourth century to fifth century AD, which was attended by tremendous chaos. It's very difficult standing here today in the 21st century to get some idea of the world literally ending forgetting most of the knowledge. Art, literature, poetry, science, mathematics was forgotten through most of the, of the European world. It only survived in a few fragments that were just far enough from the central chaos to actually survive in the outlying lands. One of those outlying lands was a handful of books up on an island now known as Ireland, and another set was deep in the Middle East, which was far enough away from the action that nothing happened to those libraries and repositories, and they laid forgotten for hundreds of years. Forgotten, that is, until the 8th century. In the 8th century was the rise of Islam. As Islam began to spread outwards through the Arabian Peninsula out into northern Africa, carrying with it the Quran and the sword, they began to rediscover these works and actually began to bring them into their own culture, to read them and translate them into Arabic. In the ninth century AD, if you wanted to be at the center of the intellectual world, you didn't go to Rome or Athens or Alexandria. Those were illiterate backwaters. You went to Baghdad, not a place we would think of in the 21st century. But in the ninth century, it was the center of the intellectual world. The Abbasid Caliphate had founded a place called the House of Wisdom. It was a vast library containing these works that were found in Syriac and Greek language within the lands that were conquered by Islam, they were recognized as important. They were translated from Greek and Syriac into Arabic. And not only were they copied and translated, but they were studied. And they excited the minds of various scholars in the Arab world. And they began to build upon these works. By the ninth century, Baghdad was the place to be. It had the largest extant library in the world. Not only did the scholars learn what, was, what had come out of the Greek world and pick up on that heritage, but they began to extend it. They made fundamental discoveries in astronomy, mathematics, optics, geography, and medicine. They invented the algebra. And a, a, a mathematician of the ninth century by the name of Al-Khwarizmi invented the algebra as a way of calculating. In fact, the word algebra comes into our language already from that system of mathematics. He also, because the Hindu lands had come under the sway of Islam about this time, learned about the Hindu way of counting and computing, which brought through it the Hindu numbers, which we now call the Arabic numbers, including the zero, which didn't even exist in the Western world. Play ten base place notation didn't exist before the ninth century. Al-Khwarizmi's book showed a new way to do calculations. It was a tremendously exciting time. Furthermore, this learning spread outwards through the Islamic empire as far away as the greatest outposts of Islam in Spain. Sadly, it ended in the 13th century 
with the Mongol invasions of the Arabian Peninsula. It was the House of Wisdom, and most of Baghdad was destroyed by the Mongols. And in fact, in local lore, the Tigris River ran black for months from the ink of all the books of the House of Wisdom that were tossed into the river and destroyed. And with that destruction began to mark this change of the intellectual downfall of the Islamic world. It stopped because it was so badly interrupted. The interruption against the Islamic world was as profound as the interruption of the barbarian invasions of Rome. But some works did survive in the outlying areas, and those outlying areas were going to be in Spain. Here are some examples of these works. This is an 11th century astrolabe and an 11th century work on astronomy, completely new work, not just simply copying Ptolemy and Aristotle and everyone else, but building on new work and new knowledge was, was created. Spain became the last outpost of these books. While the Mongols were tearing up the Arabian Peninsula, Spain was insulated. And in Spain were the great centers of, of Toledo and Cordoba and the great libraries in those places, and the places like the Alhambra. Working in that place were not only Christian traders who had come in and began to learn Arabic to read these works, but a group that had been largely kicked out of Europe, the Jews. They had actually migrated into, this, into Moorish Spain, and their Jewish scholars working kind of in the boundary lands between the Christian and Islamic world began to translate some of these works from Arabic, sometimes into Hebrew, sometimes directly back into Greek and Latin. And so as a consequence, in these libraries, the knowledge which had been lost for nearly 800 years began to slowly work their way back into their original languages and back into Europe. By the 12th century, Aristotle and Ptolemy were rediscovered. They'd been forgotten for almost a thousand years. The Christian scholars, particularly St. Thomas Aquinas, even began to embrace this knowledge in the brand new rise of the universities. The first universities in Europe began to rise up at the same point to ingest this new knowledge. The Europeans discovered their Mediterranean heritage and people like St. Thomas Aquinas began to incorporate, if you will, the logic of Aristotle into the faith of Christ. It became part of the belief set of medieval Europe excited the European mind and began to lead them into new directions of inquiry. Here's an example of one of these works. It's one of the earliest works from the 10th century. It's a translation of the only surviving work of Aristarchus of Samos on the distances of the size and the sun and the moon. But it gave first glimpse to the Europeans of the astronomical riches of an ancient time, and they began to rediscover Ptolemy. Ptolemy and Aristotle had a tremendous influence on the medieval mind. From this point, the period between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance were not only a time of rediscovery of the past, but they were a time of tremendous social and intellectual change in Europe. For example, the rise of the great universities, as I've already mentioned, places like Bologna, Paris, Rome, or the great universities, the, the beginning of Oxford and Cambridge. The invention and spread of printing, which led these from simple manuscripts to now could be mass-produced knowledge and spread everywhere through Europe. There were tremendous challenges on the political and spiritual scene as the Reformation began in Europe, as the Lutherans and the Calvinists began challenging the relatively unquestioned power of the Roman Catholic Church in, in Europe and began to change the break between a larger society and the beginning of principalities, the beginning of nationalism, and the beginning of use of local languages as opposed to the scholastic languages of Latin. And finally, there was one other innovation of this time. It was a beginning, it was the Portuguese and the Spanish began extended ocean voyages of discovery and trade as they began to spread out across the world and began to see what the world was actually like. 
In particular, it was the discovery by a Genoese mariner in the employ of the crowns of Castile and Aragon by the name of Christopher Columbus, who returned to Spain in May of 1493 with the word that he had come across a land that was not on any map. Well, he thought he had reached the, um, the eastern coast of Asia, but everyone else realized right away that he'd found something that was not on the maps of the ancients, that was not in the world of Aristotle. And they began to ask the unthinkable. What else didn't they know? And this began a profound change in the way Europeans viewed the world. And it was into that world that today's subject, Nicholas Copernicus, was born. Copernicus was born in the year 1473, 20 years before the return of Copernicus. So he was 20 years old. He was a college student when Columbus's voyages first went, came back. And he died in the year 1543. He's Polish, although then the boundaries of modern Poland made no sense. He was born in a place called Turun. He was educated at the best universities of Europe in Krakow, Bologna, and Padua. His program was to basically major in mathematics, medicine, law, astronomy, and philosophy. Now individual subjects, but then so much in their development that one person could study all five, six, or seven topics at once. He was fortunate that he was actually the nephew of a very powerful bishop of Ermland. And so not only did he, was he able to afford an education which his position would not have otherwise allowed, but when he returned from his education, he had a lifelong job as the canon of Frauenburg Cathedral. Frauenburg is up in the Danzig, uh, Danzig of modern Poland. So Copernicus had a job for life with the Roman Catholic Church. He was not a priest. He was a canon, which means he was minor orders. He never married, but it was rumored he had a mistress. And he was a very traditional thinker. He had a lot of time on his hands because a canonry was basically... Um, it was a bit of nepotism. You were in that job because you were the bishop's nephew, and you only had a few small legal duties, and the rest of the time was your own. He was a very traditional thinker. He was raised in the Aristotelian view of the world in the first universities. He was very Aristotelian in his outlook. In fact, in many ways, he was a strict Aristotelian. He was also very conservative in his thinking. If you compare him to a contemporary of his, the great humanist philosopher Desiderius Erasmus, he was downright conservative, and Erasmus was practically radical by comparison. He was a staunch Roman Catholic, and he was a very interesting man. He stood at the boundary between the old and the new worlds, if you will. His life spanned the discovery of the new world geographically, and his intellectual life also spanned the re general rediscovery of the ancient world and the new discoveries that were beginning to challenge the primacy of that view. Now, Copernicus was discontented. He'd studied astronomy along with medicine and law and mathematics, and he didn't like the Ptolemaic system. And the reason he didn't like it is because of the 